I actually don't know much about physics. But like you can think about quantum mechanics as you're thinking about like these probabilities of individual subatomic particles. I sound, this sounds so pretentious. No, I just think it's hilarious that you're like, I actually don't know much about physics, but if we think about quantum mechanics. <laughs> yeah. Hello, you're listening to Educated But Confused, the podcast where good science meets good conversation casually. We're your hosts, Val, Avery, and Yasin. Welcome, everyone, to episode four of season one, right? Yeah. That is right. Moving right along. Yeah, getting there. We didn't think we'd make it this far, but we did. <laughs> My name is Isin Falali. Uh, pronouns he, him. I am educated in engineering, currently training as a neuroscientist. And um, what I'm confused about today is I was talking to an old mentor, and she's working with NASA on, like, tissue engineering. And what she's trying to identify is, does gravity, anti-gravity, slow the, like, proliferation of cells? So, like, human aging decreases as you, like, go through space. And I'm just wondering, like, could that be used as, like, a therapeutic if we, like, define gravity on Earth type of thing? Or we just send you into space. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, could you just eliminate, like, you know, dying essentially but Wait, what does set, it do like it slows the rate of growth not dying i should say it slows the rate of your cells this is a hypothesis oh, got theory, it, got theory. It. so you don't have to fact check it because <laughs> <laughs> they've seen that sometimes like in induced uh, pluripotent stem cells in anti-gravity environments do not differentiate they just keep proliferating so they don't differentiate the cells so they're like that's weird we need to study this a little bit more so i'm confused about that because i've also heard like people go up into space and like don't age as much as a typical human here but i've always thought that was because of like travel like space travel not like oh, what's like happening to your cells relativity yeah relativity because yeah. of relative times but it could be cellular processes as well that's what i'm confused about i don't know much about this isn't so. there something about bone loss and going to space too yeah. so you like you lose a lot of bone because you aren't Use it. Yeah, you don't have gravity, so you're not using it, so it starts to oh, atrophy out. Bone density starts oh, to That's okay. why you have to do all the exercises up there. Yeah. It's keep up muscle oh, density right. and bone density as much as I can. Gotcha. It's like one of the things with weightlifting is an increase in bone density. Oh. Yeah. Because, like, if you did some, if that theory proved to be true and helpful, and then you were like, okay, let's do anti gravity to help people, like, not yeah. age as quickly. Like, could that be marketable? Then would they also have to do yeah, just, like, like, a, a ton of thing. workouts and stuff yeah. to keep their bone density up? Yeah. I don't you know, know, like, other effects. That's what I'm thinking. Is like, is this the next frontiers of humanity to, like, keep people alive? But then, I like, don't know. We keep people alive? So, yeah, yeah, that's like, the thing. It's like, do we want... This goes into an ethical issue. You know? Because <laughs> already, like, we live longer than... You know, like, maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> Are we keeping a lot of humans alive too much? Because isn't that like with prolonging Huntington's disease? Like in our class, we were talking about like this like gain of function theory with Huntington's, but like yeah, uh, it's good at first, but not later. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I don't know where they're going with this research. They just want to see what happens, I guess. So I'm confused, and we'll probably read more about it. Hopefully, yeah, yeah hopefully. Hopefully we'll read more about it. I think that's yeah. a proper thing to be confused about. Yeah. yeah I thought big. it was interesting, too. <laughs> I will bet that you're not the only one confused about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's probably a whole, like, community 
trying to solve that exact question. <laughs> I'll tap into it. Um, what are you drinking? Oh, yes. Green tea, decaf. Because I'm still on anti-caffeine. Love it. That was, that was because of some, like you have, your body doesn't process caffeine. Yeah, I think I have a caffeine sensitivity. So I started getting these like muscle spasms on my back. This might be TMI, but I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And then I I was like, let me just cut caffeine and it worked. And so I was like, I probably have a caffeine sensitivity. So. Got it. Yeah. Dang. Mm -hmm. That's sad. Yeah. It's It's all right though. Most use drug. Really? Yeah. I mean, I drink it every day. Like it would be hard not to to me. Yeah. 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 My name is Avery Vandewater, pronouns they, them, uh, educated in neuroscience in my undergrad, and now also studying neuroscience in my graduate education. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'm confused about what to do when you get sick in a public area and like setting, because like two weeks ago, I had to give my presentation for neurobio disease, my like practice presentation, and I was getting ready, and I was just sitting in like the atrium, and <laughs> and then all of a sudden I started feeling really nauseous, and my stomach was really hurting. I had this pain in my stomach, and I was nauseous, and so I went outside to get some fresh air, and then I threw up in a bush like outside of PBDB. And and then I was like, okay, maybe I'll be okay. Maybe it's just like a one and done. And then no. And so then I threw up again. (laughs) What was the time difference between these two? Like, was it like, oh, I'm okay 30 seconds or like, I'm okay 10 minutes? 30 seconds. Okay. It was like 30 seconds to a minute. I was walking outside and I, I'm sure if someone looked at me, like they were like, they are not okay. Because my (laughs) face was probably green (laughs) and yeah. And so that happened and I was like, okay, I need to go home. And so I texted Lulu and I was like, hey, can you pick me up from campus? And she's like, no, like I can't, sorry. And I was like, okay. The bus comes in 40 minutes. <laughs> so like, what am I going to do for 40 minutes? Because I'm not feeling better. I'm feeling worse. <laughs> oh my God. Jeez. And so then oh I no. went to the second floor of PVDB where there are those like private bathrooms yep. and yep. I just like locked myself in one of the bathrooms <laughs> and threw up in the bathroom and literally like put my sweater down on the floor and was just like fetal position in the bathroom because oh my, <laughs> my stomach also really hurt and that, so I was just like what's going on like am I about to die in the bathroom <laughs> like and so I called I had gotten an allergy shot that morning and I was like, maybe in some weird way this has to do with my allergy shot. So I mm. called the allergist nurse line and they were like, yeah, that's not us. And I was like, okay, great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they were so confident. Yeah. Well, they were like, why don't you check in with us later? We'll call you back, see how you're doing. I was like, okay, okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> they did not care at all. <laughs> yeah. come on. They're like, you're fine. You're like, so yeah, and I'm like sweating, like I sweat through my shirt. I have like the chills. I'm shaking so much. Oh I have to email. <laughs> I have to email Natalie and say, "Hey, I can't give my presentation that's in five minutes because I am like throwing up in a bathroom." Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I was just like, "I am suddenly very sick and can't come." Um, and so then, 
Yeah, then like I made it to the bus. At that point I was feeling like I had gotten past the worst of it and so I went home. But I also had to like, I had to call maintenance on myself. I was like, hey, <laughs> like someone should clean that bathroom. They're like, hey, uh, <laughs> somebody had a mess in the bathroom. I don't know, it no. wasn't me. But, like, but I walked in there and I found saw it. it. I found it. The worst. It was like that Did you out yourself? I outed myself. Oh, I was like, totally honest. Oh, well, they have no You're... idea who you are. They're like, no, they asked my name. Oh, what? Can we get your name? Uh, yeah, my name is Yassine. <laughs> Self incriminate. <laughs> so I'll they... take the blame for you. I'll take the blame. Yeah, I was just like, hey, so uh, I just got sick in this bathroom. All over this bathroom. And like, I cleaned it up, but I just, <laughs> like, I didn't want. For, you know, like, I just used water and, like... <laughs> I just imagine you in the bathroom with, like, those paper towels that only come out and, like... Yep. <laughs> these, like, <laughs> after... <laughs> just, like, moving my hand in front of the sensor 20 times. Um, yeah, so I didn't want to, like, get anyone else sick, so I was like, hey, someone should clean this bathroom. And then they were like, yeah, what's your name? It's <laughs> like, oh, I have to tell you my name? Um, yeah, this can't be an anonymous tip line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what is the big difference? What if you hung up the phone? Why does it matter? Just hang <laughs> Just, up. Oh, you should have. My nope. name? Beep. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I thought at first this was going to be like, I was nervous and had like the nervous throw-ups. No. Yeah. I was like, oh, like any given Sunday, Willie Bean throws up and yeah. then has like a great game. Yeah. And I thought you were going to be like... I threw up and then I walked back in there and I killed my presentation for Natalie. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if you gave the presentation that day that you no, presented. No, rescheduled oh, okay. for rescheduled. sure. Okay. I was wondering to be like, that's very impressive. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it sounds to be like you handled it about as well as you can. Yeah. Right? But like, what could else? I don't know what else I could have done, I guess. But I, at that moment, I was just very confused at first of what do I do. Yeah. Because um, normally you want to be home or like in a safe yeah. environment, not like at the workspace, work. you know? That's like, yeah. Especially yeah. throwing up because it's not like you can hide it and just like sit somewhere. Yeah, and then I got my period the next day, so I was like, oh, like oh, the stomach God. pain, like probably just cramps, and I was like, mm. anyway, it was, it was a mess. That's rough. Yep. Anyway, I'm drinking. I was drinking green tea, as well, but it took us so long <laughs> to get our <laughs> mic situation yeah. set up. So now I'm just drinking water. Yeah. Good old H2O. Nice. Well, I'm Val. He, him pronouns. Um, educated in psychology, health, and mathematics. Currently training in neuroscience. I don't think I've ever said that before, actually, on the oh. podcast. You are <laughs> oddly enough. First, folks. Uh, currently being trained in neuroscience. I don't think I have ever said that. Um, I'm growing as a person. Here we are, <laughs> live and in action. Uh, I'm confused about the man—not the manufacturer, but the—I don't know how to say this—the creation of Christmas ornaments. I feel like manufacturer is probably a word. Manufacturer? Yeah. Manufacturer. Yeah. I'm very confused about how... A specific kind? Just, just a, in general. I don't know. Any. Any ornament? Any ornament. If we're, look, if we're just looking at the ornaments that are around and Avery's lovely decorated home. Yeah. Like, how do they get them to be that that way? Because they're like a plastic. You mean like how they're hollow? Yeah, they're hollow. They're perfectly spherical. Yeah. They're just like two sides glued together, I'm pretty sure. Are they? Yeah. Yeah, I've broken oh. one. Yeah, I'm gonna guess a mold was involved. But I don't know. See, this is this is why you're here. Yeah. I didn't think about a mold. But some are like 
fancy ornaments. We don't have yeah. fancy ornaments, oh, but no. some are like glass blown. Yeah, or like design, special designs and everything. Yeah, like, so I'm sure it varies a lot. Glass blowing is another good one. I, I thought about being confused about that today. Glass blowing. Glass blowing. Yeah, I feel like just it's like the whole process. Of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also slightly. You're not like blowing on the glass. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> so like, you know, I'm confused about it. But mostly the ornaments, I think, because Christmas is coming up. Yeah. Thinking yeah. about ornaments. I don't guess I really don't think about ornaments that often. Yeah. But in thinking about Christmas, like ornaments come to mind, and I'm still confused about how they make them. You know? So like, is there like a manufacturer that's making? Christmas ornaments specifically? It's a good question. Or are they just Ooh. manufacturing in general? I don't know. It's like, like that's a specialty. Companies, different companies making different Manufacturing ornaments. in general what? Just like these little... 3D shaped things. And they just happen to make ornaments for Christmas time. Yeah. Oh. Or they're like... Because it's only seasonal, so I wouldn't imagine like... I don't know. I don't know how any of this I wish I could speculate like we speculated the... Uh, Waffle fries situation. <laughs> yeah. First of all, if you're hearing this, we've got confirmation that Chick Fil A does in fact receive their waffle fries pre-cut and frozen in a bag. Was um, that your initial question? That was what? the confusion. No, that was confusion last. last, in the last was episode. specifically Chick Fil A. No, no, no. The confusion was about making waffle fries. How oh, okay, okay. That? Not if Chick Fil A. But then we is kind of went on a tangent, like we are right now. We have to. It's, it's you know par for the course. Yeah. Um, but one of those tangents was, you know, I, you said I need to work at Chick Fil A. I was like, I would imagine they get them frozen from a factory where oh, they cut yeah. them, yeah. Uh, and that is a fact. Or at least at the one Chick Fil A in which we have an anecdotal evidence of somebody working <laughs> at. We have a source. <laughs> right. You could call them a wall. Yeah. Shout out, Megan, if you're yeah. listening to this. <laughs> Yeah. All right, we're revealing our stuff. <laughs> I was gonna say. Oh, we should oh, have it. if people know our confusions to tweet us or like email us. Oh yeah, if, like, they, if they feel for our confusion. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I'm an ornament manufacturer. I just listen to this. Like, <laughs> 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 tell you exactly. Like, wow, we're reaching a niche audience. <laughs> Your uncle in manufacturing. Send him to us. If you have an uncle in manufacturing, send him to us. Yeah, just the uncle. Yeah. I keep speaking into the mic, acting like I'm talking to the listener. Like, well, I am talking you to are. the listener, but like, y'all are the listener. Not directly. Yeah. <laughs> did you see what you're checking? Oh, I did not. Thank you. Wow. You our, should. Our, I am a devoted listener yeah. to all four episodes. <laughs> or all three episodes. Yeah, all three <laughs> listeners. Well, there are four. There's the pilot, but you don't have to There was a the pilot. pilot. There was Kayla. Oh, yeah, there are four. Yeah. 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 Wow. Look at Wow, our guest coming in clutch today. This is um, I am drinking a sparkling yeah. water. I drank an Easy Eddie, which I don't know what kind of alcoholic beverage that is. It's an IPA. An IPA. Easy IPA, technically. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I'm not much of a connoisseur, but uh, I had a rough final, so I decided to drink a beer. Um, I am now drinking sparkling water. Lemon flavored. Nice. Yeah. All right, I'm the last one up. I'm Bill Milanic. I am... Trained in neuroscience with a psychology emphasis. And I'm currently training in neuroscience, but cell biology. So uh -huh. the opposite side of the neuroscience spectrum. What I'm confused about, we were talking about this earlier, but I get the theory of a garage. Like, I get that you go up and you come back down and it's a spiral. That Park, makes sense. Parking garage. But if you, yeah, yeah a parking garage. <laughs> no, you're at home garage. home garage. I have no clue how those things work. <laughs> Crazy. I just don't get, like, I couldn't, I can't, like, spatially understand it. 
Like, I can use it, but if you make me, like, imagine what it's supposed to be, I can't get the double spiral thing down in my head. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that I'm going down on one side and up on the other side, but I can see both sides. Like, I just don't get it. Have you had that happen where you're, like, going one direction and then you see the other person yeah. going the other direction? Mm-hmm. And they're going up and you're going down and you're like, what? It's very disorienting. Yeah. It's, true. it's very hard for me to understand. Like, what, who is the architect? That's a good question. Someone had to have done Hold it Hold on, do you two understand the parking garage? No. no. Okay. I have no idea. Okay, all right. All right. Every time I go on an elevator to try and get on the floor, even that, I mess up. I'm like, well, I parked on three, but it's going to two. And <laughs> yes! Should I, if I, I go on? So relatable. I'm just like <laughs> guessing. I'm like, well, I, like, I think I spent some time in the elevator. Ooh. A lot of confusion today. <laughs> yeah. End of the semester. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We're all just... I guess with that, can you tell us, like, smash grab your upbringing into science? Wait, wait. What are you drinking? Oh, oh yeah. You can't can throw, throw. Can Check it out. You yeah. both are checking each other. Circle. Well, yeah. I'm drinking an Imperial Stout, and it's specifically a bourbon barrel-aged brandy Imperial Stout. And I'm assuming the brandy means that this is aged in both bourbon and brandy barrels, but I could be wrong. Who knows? Imperial Stouts are like a dark closet that I never go into. I, I have like not figured it out. Why did you pick that drink? I picked anything like kind of on the darker side of ale. And Val chose this specifically for me. Mm-hmm. It was quite good. It is cool, I'm glad. very alcoholic. <laughs> Val, is that, is that why you chose it? I wanted to make sure he was real spiced up, you know? <laughs> I wanted to make sure he was ready to go. Also, very expensive. For, what was it? Like a bottle at the grocery store was 8 bucks. I think it was $8.99. Yeah. yeah. Is that expensive? Nine. Yeah, and then for a single bottle. And tax, yeah. I think, oh, it, was, wow. I think it came out to be like store. 13 something. What? Oh my yeah. god. That's for $5? You spent that much money? No, I couldn't have been that much. Sorry. I I don't remember exactly how much it was. And I did not get a receipt because I was like, I don't need Bill knowing how much this costs. And yet here we are. Here we are. Very good. I'm glad. It was worth it. We can't compensate people. So the least we can do is give them the drink of their choice. And I'm drinking water. You need to with something that's 14%. You'll have to compensate. True. Don't want to get too dehydrated. (laughs) So Um, you said... Scientific upbringing. All right. This What's is... your journey? What got you in? Give us all the juice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was in from the beginning. Um, my dad's a scientist by training, and my mom is like a scientist by training. She has a master's in molecular biology. My dad is a professor of physiology. So wow. I've been like... Destined. Both of those. Yeah. <laughs> Science has been a part of my upbringing, at least. So, like that style of thinking, the um, there's like a lot of small pieces that kind of go into that. But it made me interested in it from the beginning, and then it became like a rebellious teenager. It was like science is stupid; it doesn't matter. What? Yeah, I know. Why? <laughs> I was not a very good child. <laughs> <laughs> but then I went into college and did neuroscience. I was interested, but wasn't. Why do you choose neuroscience if you're all boo science? It's a great question. There's some danger in peering into like my 17 and 18 year old mind. I'm not sure sure if we explore it, it's going to make sense. But I'm sure it was just like 
being rebellious and angsty, but also being like, the brain is very interesting. And there's, unlike some other disciplines, there's a real spectrum of thought that goes on with it. Like you can go from the output of your behavior, which in a blunt sense is like some combination of your 86 billion neurons pushing out some response based on some input. And you can go all the way from that macro level down to like the level where we're thinking about single ion channels and ions going through them and how when you sum the activity of ion channels over a whole cell, you can get this predictable response that powers circuits and then pushes out that behavior. I was like intrigued by that. I think when I went to college, I was really intrigued by the psychology side of it where it's like, I don't know, basic social psychology stuff. The stuff you learn like freshman year, like the Stanford Prison Experiment. Yeah. Your like, mind is blown. You're like, oh, humans can act badly. I <laughs> <laughs> think like, well, maybe that wasn't like the greatest idea. Like, maybe if you put a bunch of 18 year olds in like a prison environment, that would end badly no matter what you did. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as I went through that, I became more attracted to the cellular side because it's like a it's a real averaging property. So a single ion channel doesn't really work very well. When you think about it, I mean, you're taught that it opens when you depolarize, mm-hmm. or I guess certain ion channels open when you depolarize. When you actually look at a single ion channel, you see that it like opens and closes and opens and closes. And like, really what happens is just the probability it opens increases as you depolarize. Mm. So if you give it any given ion channel kind of sucks at its job, but because you have like 10,000 of them on average, you get this really nice, consistent response. You get an edge potential, basically. Yeah. And that same thing happens with cells. Any given cell doesn't respond exactly the way you want to like be crude. It kind of sucks at its job. But averaged over 10,000 cells, you get this really clean, like consistent response to stimuli. Mm-hmm. And I find that like organization really fascinating, that... The body or nature builds these systems that are not very good individually, mm-hmm. but it knows that by averaging over large bodies, you can build these really consistent responses out of them. Wow. So that's beautiful. That's no, that is. And I feel like I'm understanding you more now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in like uh, I, the way I think about this, I actually don't know much about physics. But, like, you can think about quantum mechanics as you're thinking about, like, these probabilities of individual subatomic particles. I sound, this sounds so pretentious. No, I just think it's hilarious that you're like, I actually don't know much about physics, but if we think about quantum mechanics. <laughs> yeah. I'm just sitting here like, uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. This sounds very pretentious, but it's kind of how I base my thought about the brain. So you have all these, like, individual particles. You don't really know what they're doing. You get all these nice probabilities out of them, but you find that... When you average like trillions of them, you get this really consistent suite of responses that you can, in shorthand, model as classical mechanics, like what Newton did. And I see that same thing with the brain. Like, if you just tried to zoom all the way down to its very basics and like the individual cells and ion channels, you will get this semi chaos. But if you look closely enough, you can get these nice probability distributions out of them. And if you think about it hard enough, you can then scale those into what the response of the circuit is and then 
driving the response in the mm-hmm. whole brain. When you mer, I mean, kind of like building a pyramid, basically, where right. proteins and cells sit at the bottom, and you build into like groups of cells and then circuits, and then you get kind of the whole brain working together, and that's mm-hmm. how you can gel a lot of these characteristics that don't seem to make sense in isolation together. Cool. Life lives on leveling. Because now I'm wondering, what if you take it a step further? You get into like the social aspect. Like society. You, society has to yeah. connect. We have to build so we can build things, you know? You're exactly right. The problem is, the reason I have now gone away from psychology is because when you work with cells, your error is cells. Like, mm. if I'm wrong, 10 cells don't do what I want. But, because I'm measuring like a thousand of them. I don't really care about 10 of them. With humans mm-hmm. in psychology, your error bar is suddenly represented in humans. Mm-hmm. So you can be right about the distribution, but there's this group of humans that don't fit it. And I have, I, I like mentally can't handle that very well. I mean, even with like behavior, I can't handle that very well. I can't like fit that into my system right now. So I've gone <laughs> like really far away into single cells. <laughs> The complete opposite direction. Yeah, it takes me. It's, I guess it would take some time to like really get comfortable, like thinking at higher levels. Mm. Probably where you three think. So the topic of our episode is to ask you about prospectus, which I think is similar to quals, like qualifying exams in mm-hmm. other programs. And so I think a nice way to start out, which you've already shared your story up to like picking neuroscience in grad school. Not starting grad school, though. Like, how has your experience been so far in grad school? And, like, where are you at in the program? So I came in in 2019. Um, yeah, so it was, what, right before COVID? Pre-pandemic. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, it wasn't... <laughs> it was grad school, so, like, it wasn't super easy right out of the box. But you go through your first year, we've done that, second year through comps. And that went okay. I mean, it's like hard to judge exactly what happened because COVID hit in the middle of my second semester. But I think I more or less followed the progression. I kind of rotated through labs. Wait, you gave comps virtually? No, I, well, yeah, basically. I was Mm going to say, I was like hybrid kind of. I had some people in person and some virtual. And I kind of came into grad school. I took, what, three years off? And so I came in with a little bit better understanding of where I was than when I graduated college. And I was pretty sure when I got into graduate school that the way that most PIs run their labs, um, which is pretty, like, hands-off, like, your graduate students get projects, they work on them, they bring data to you, and you, like, work through it with them. Maybe you help them acutely with one or two things, but the PI is not like actively involved in your day-to-day life. And I was like, I probably will not be successful that way. Like I've lived long enough to know that I need someone to kind of kick me sometimes. And I need someone to spend a lot of time with me because I'm like a pretty, like a pretty rough project. I need someone who's going to like put the work into remodel. And I got attracted to my boss that way because he spent a lot of time with me, even though if it was, it's like, Good that he does, but also it can be destructive at times, too. And so I chose his lab and worked with him, and it was, like, mostly electrophysiology. And Which, you know, for the listener, what is that? So <laughs> it encompasses a lot of different 
things. You can think of electrophysiology broadly as just using kind of the electrics of the body to understand what's going on. The brain runs off of, I mean, I don't like the word bioelectricity. That doesn't make sense to me. But basically the brain uses electrical energy to run its systems. And the body uses electrical energy to do that. And you, there's a lot of different techniques to examine that electricity to figure out what's actually going on. And the specific one that I do is called patch clamp, which is more or less studying how a single cell goes through electrical responses. And that could be based on like firing where you're measuring ash potentials, or it can be based on like a drug coming by and binding to receptors. You get current coming in. It could also be from neurotransmitter, lots of things. Gotcha. But that's kind of what I cut my teeth in my second year. And that was rough. It's a patch clamping is rough. And cutting your teeth with it is going to be pretty rough too. My boss helped me a lot putting together my committee. And so I did my comps and it went pretty well. And I presented kind of what my thesis would be. So I was able to get at least a little bit of feedback on like, what I should do. And I did kind of a natural thing that a lot of graduate students do, which is present too much information <laughs> when they're like, you can't do this. So like, how can we think about cutting it down to like a more manageable project? And I'd say that like, that's probably a good thing to do in comps show up with too much because it's way easier to talk to your committee about cutting stuff out than it is to like <laughs> add stuff afterwards. Yeah. I can see how that would be. So you, you get out of comps. I'd say first thing you do, get out of comps, take a break. Mm. At least a week, take a vacation, go somewhere else, or take a staycation. <laughs> just, it, going back to lab immediately will not be productive. Although the, like, the immediate aftermath will be nice to just like write down everything they said because you won't remember it. I mean, that's true for everything in graduate school. Write it down because you won't remember it. There's a great <laughs> like, guiding line through it. But so you take a break and then you come back. And regardless of what our handbook says, prospectus is negotiable. Hmm. So you can think of the bedrock of prospectus as you're going to present your real life thesis plan to your committee. And that will include like the chair for comps gets kicked off. And your advisor gets put on. Now, going back to the negotiable thing, if you want the chair from your comps to stay on, you can build a six-person committee. That's not unheard of. But you'll have to advocate for yourself to do that. And you can think of it as, again, your it's your thesis plan. And this is real-life thesis plan. You don't want to show up with like a half-baked thesis plan. And it can be a little bit different when you do human research because the data collection is so much different. Um, yeah. At least for us, it's like if you do enough work with your mice, you'll get data. You're kind of dependent on your mice. But it's like humans just won't show up sometimes. You'll be like, I need 30 people, and I spent a whole year, and only 10 people have shown up for the repeat trial. And you can't do anything about that. Yeah. I'm at a year and a half, and I have four participants in one of mine. Yeah. So I don't know if this will fit as well. But I think the idea is you want enough preliminary data that the bedrock of your thesis is obvious. 
Because you don't want to walk in and have a discussion about your thesis. What do you mean by bedrock? Like techniques or like data just in general? I would say like data and effect. So like you walk in with a question, you need to show some kind of manipulation or effect. That's like, all right, this is both real and worth exploring enough for your thesis. That makes sense. You don't really want to get into a prospectus and spend most of your time talking about whether the question you asked or the effect you're showing matters or is real. Like, if, it, if you have so little preliminary data that you can't tell anything from it, your committee will often be like, well, is this the right path to go down? Mm-hmm. So you kind of want to be like, I've walked far enough down the path that I know I can walk farther. So I'd say that kind of dictates when I do it. The handbook says that you do it by like May 1st or something. Yeah. You'll get emails telling you to do that. Nothing will happen if you don't. Nothing at all. <laughs> and while it can be very helpful, like I'd say as soon as you think you have enough um, to go down the path, I'd do prospectus. Because you get like really valuable feedback. Committee can often think about your data in ways that you haven't. Like hypothesis-driven science is great, but it usually means that you interpret your data before you get it. So like you've interpreted what no effect is and what an effect is. And yeah. often you're committee will bring new perspectives to that to where you're thinking about like different pieces or you see like a certain set of outliers that would be interesting to explore. And that can be really helpful. So I'd say as soon as you have enough that your PI and you think that you have enough to walk down a path, do your prospectus. But you don't need to feel any pressure to do it by the time that the program says that you need to do it. Also, the document that they have you write you don't need to do it that way. It's built to make you write the like intro to your thesis, but you don't have to do that. And like I sent that out to my committee, and one of my committee members responded and was like, "Don't write that much." He's like, "We don't want to read that much. Give us like it was like thirty pages. It's supposed to be like thirty pages, double spaced of background." He's like, "Give me like two or three pages." Yeah, we don't we don't want that much background and if we care about that we'll ask you about it during the meeting but we really just want to see what do you have where are you going with it that's all i want to know i want you to write that in as little words as possible and i was like i don't know if that's possible so i like wrote the committee or i wrote the program and they were like well whatever your program whatever your committee agrees on we will go with you won't turn your prospectus document in oh they don't even ask for it no it just yes no did you do it more or less. You'll get like a little bit more expanded sheet that you and your PI fill out. But the prospectus document itself doesn't get turned in. It can be really nice if you wrote the intro to your thesis before you have to write it because then you can just copy it and paste it. But if you don't want to do that, you can talk to your committee about it and try and like rearrange what it's supposed to be because it's really just supposed to be the plan of your thesis. When you agree on it and your committee agrees on it, that's your thesis going to be. So if you do those experiments and you get the results across what they are, you'll get a PhD. That's kind of like the bedrock of it. Gotcha. And everything around that is negotiable. You probably need to come to the program with an alternative. But as long as you've thought through it and you have the support of your PI, you can do almost whatever you want for that. How similar was your comps, like what you presented in your comps, to what you ended up proposing for your thesis work and your perspectives? That's a good question. 
in some sense, it was pretty similar because it was all based on the same idea and the same question. Yeah. But what I actually presented, like, experiment-wise was not. Because you had more yeah. that you've done. Since. I had more that I'd done, and I had a much better idea of what I wanted to do. That's nice to hear. As someone not having done comps yet, and I'm like, ooh, I mean, I have a vague idea of what I want to do. <laughs> but, like, you know, I couldn't write out, oh, well, this is what I think I'm going to do for my dissertation and what experiments I'm going to run. And, you know, like, if I do X, Y, Z, then that's it. Yeah. Yeah, it was not very fun. Like Gage, I'm a chronic procrastinator. <laughs> so I like wrote most of my prospectus document in maybe a week or two. What? Oh, so did you in like a fever dream. Oh. <laughs> oh, my oh my gosh. Maybe it's, maybe that's the key. I was gonna ask you what are some survival tips to prospectus. But I mean, maybe it's the key to procrastinate, because then you'll work your ass off. I wouldn't treat it too seriously, like Comps is like a kind of pass-fail thing, so it can be very stressful. In the same way, like, a PhD is stressful because there's two ways out. You either quit or you get a PhD. There's no, like, middle ground. Mm. That, that's what comps feels like. It feels, like, very existential. Mm. The perspective is just a dressed-up committee meeting. So if you show up and they don't like what you did, what's going to happen? You're yeah. going to have another meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else. A follow-up. <laughs> They'll be like, we didn't like this. What if you do this? Think about that. And we'll do this again. And then you'll redo it. You'll think about your question, your, pro your project again. And then you'll go back to them and present them again. with somebody else. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's fun because you don't want to like write that document like eight times. Right. right. There's no problem. Also, no one in the future is going to ask you how your prospectus went. Most people probably won't even understand that you did prospectus. And they'll be like, why were your comps and your prospectus different things? <laughs> so, like, no reason to, like, dig into the details there. So if you do make mistakes, that's totally fine. When you finished comps, did you immediately start, like, did you think about prospectus? Or did you just, like, keep doing your research after comps and then... <sighs> And then took a moment, took that fever dream week of, oh, I got to do this. <laughs> so in some ways, I did not think directly about prospectus. Yeah. But I was acutely thinking about what my project was, where it was going, what I should do. Yeah. And at least the way the lab that I'm in runs is there's lots of short-term pressure. So those questions are like constantly top of mind. So it, it kind of like flows with that that I would have thought out the kind of skeletal structure of what my thesis would be. And then my, when my perspectives came along, it was just like, let me flesh it out. I know exactly what the bones are. I know what I have. And because I work in, I, I think it's common for like more cellular sciences, you can get a pretty big effect size. When I do a manipulation, I can use a hammer and I can really break something and I can really show you how it's broken. Whereas like, if you're doing human research, you can't, you don't really get hammers. You get effective sample sizes <laughs> and you hope that you can get an effect to read out of it. Yeah. I can just like, like my effect is I just broke three proteins with a hammer. 
And then it's like, I'll pretty easily see something wrong. And I can show that in a graphical way that makes it look like something's really wrong. And then it's pretty easy to be like, well, what's causing this to go wrong? Like, what's the actual mechanism of the wrongness? Mm. That's like a pretty easy system to set out. Whereas I'm not sure that is available to people who do more behavior research where you can use a hammer, but because it's only on a small set of cells, a small part of the body, maybe it doesn't manifest as some large behavioral change. Or with humans, I mean, I'm out of my depth. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it from like a sleep perspective, like a person could have a lesion, come in with a brain lesion, and their sleep may or may not have an effect. Like there may, not, may or may not be a difference or deficit in their sleep. We might not see it. We could potentially see, you know, an excess of one type of sleep versus another. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has anything to do with the lesion. <laughs> it could have been a sleep deficit already that they had. Like, yeah. it's, it's very blurry. Like intervention sometimes. studies are like a little clearer or can be clearer if you're like, okay, we, you know, for me, it would be like, oh, we scanned them before we did this. And then we did this whole like, I don't know, cognitive behavioral therapy. And then we scan them again. And look, like now it's different and mm-hmm. it's, you know, symptoms and correlated and uh, that's nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. For us, it's like the pre and post behavior working memory tests. It's like uh, they have this much, you know, ability to remember these words before sleep and then after sleep. If it's a patient group, like we predict that they're not going to have as much uh, memory capacity as a normal person. And then we can try to show that. <laughs> but it may or may not work, right? True. But isn't that the ultimate goal? Like, thinking about the cellular level, don't you want to bring that all the way up to behavior? Yes. Just, does it answer those questions, or, like, is it more complicated than that? So, I guess the way I think about it is that the farther down you go on the pyramid, the more powerful your, your tools get to a certain extent. Um and like the higher up you go, kind of the less powerful they become. Even though you can manipulate genetics, like as we know from being a human being, genetics does not dictate what your outcome is most of the time. Whereas for a single cell, it can. Because you can think of like a single or little pieces of us can be dictated by genetics, like very much binary, ones or zeros. Like if you delete a certain gene, you can eliminate a cell line. And so it can be helpful at the lower level because you get these large effects. But then as those like averaging properties go up from ion channels to cells, the circuits, to the behavior, that effect size diminishes because you get you kind of add complexity and the ability for the system, if not to compensate, at least not to show the effect so big. And I think the goal is definitely to bring it all the way. But it would be very hard for you to show like a 2% change in a cell's behavior and then argue with a straight face to an audience that this is physiologically relevant Mm. for a whole organism. Mm. So I think the cellular sciences will select for larger effects. And part of it's also just how we study. When you get up to humans, you can't eliminate things and then see how they change. (laughs) For cells, you can just eliminate it, see what happens. And you can assume that everything that has happened differently is happening because that process in some way needs what you eliminated. And then you can add it back and you can see what changes. Mm-hmm. And then you can start adding it back only little pieces of it or adding it back only at certain times. 
and you can start to get a more nuanced idea of like, all right, what exactly is it doing? What exactly can we change about it? And you just, I think you just get more powerful tools. So you need larger effects. Mm-hmm. You can imagine if you knocked out like eight genes and you were like, all right, this cell only spikes 9,998 times a minute. Whereas in my wild type, it spikes 10,000 times a minute. You'd be like, no one cares. <laughs> that doesn't make a difference. I had a question about how you come up with your timeline. Like how, because I saw that in the handbook that you like, in your prospectus, you present, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And like, this is kind of the timeline of how I'll finish. <laughs> like, you know, how I'm going to do that stuff and when and. Yeah, that timeline, so it's not perfect, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd say, because when you usually show up to prospectus, you've gotten some stuff to work, and you know the stuff that you haven't gotten to work yet, if you're going to use a new, new technique or something like that. Yeah. And I'd say, draw it up, and the first thing you want to draw up is that everything works perfectly. You have no troubleshooting to do. Just... You're essentially calculating the exact amount of time it takes to do the right experiment to then have everything you need. And then from there, you can be like, all right, let me program in like a reasonable amount of things go wrong time. And that will differ depending on like the tempo of your technique. Like if your technique's tempo is like four months when you collect a piece of data or like four hours the amount of time you'll add for things going wrong will be different. But then you can go up with like a rough estimate for exactly how long your PhD will take. And that doesn't mean that it's right. You can imagine it's like using like a prediction on how long it's gonna take you to get to like Colorado Mm -hmm. from here. That gives you a rough estimate. Like I'm a human, I need to stop to eat dinner. Maybe I need to stop to go to sleep. Maybe my car breaks down. Like you don't need to plug in all of those things. You just need to plug in how much time does it take me to do the techniques that I need and get the data I need, and then how much time do I think in a reasonable world it would go wrong. And then present that. And you know, if it's wrong, no one's going to care two years later. Yeah. You're just trying to show that you've thought through everything you need and that you've given yourself a reasonable amount of time to do it. If something catastrophic happens, the timeline will change. That'll be fine. Nobody will hold you to the timeline. Hmm. Do you still use the timeline? That you created? Yeah, kind of. Okay. I say the timeline I presented was like a distilled version. I have kind of like three separate timelines that I have working at any given time. One of them is like my thesis timeline. So it's everything I need to do for my thesis in really broad terms. Like, I need to do this. I need to do this. And then whatever I'm working on, I'll like choose like, all right, I'm doing these three things right now. That's what I'm balancing. I'll pull that and do a more detailed thing like... I need to do this technique. But the first thing I need to do is contact a sales agent because we don't own anything to do it. Mm. And I need to contact a lab that's done it before so I have a basic idea of what's going on. And then I break that down into like, what am I doing this week? Like, I'm emailing a sales rep or I'm sitting down and trying to read through this stupid (laughs) protocol. Bill, you are so good at breaking down the levels to things. Is that just (laughs) naturally... 
It's like you're like to sales rep all the way to thesis project. Just <laughs> the whole thing. Like that's kind of incredible. I think part of it's that I get really overwhelmed mm. when I because like when you just like think about like oh I have to do all these things. I'm like swimming in a sea of tasks, and if I don't organize that, I will drown. Mm-hmm. So, and I've learned that I once tried to organize it all on the same list, where it's like everything <laughs> and like all three levels. And I was like, I can't do this. Like all the way till like a whole week, nothing makes sense. <laughs> so I was like, all right, we need like a big picture list, the middle picture list, where I like these are the things that are floating around in my head, and then the my week list. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, everybody has their own system of organization. Yeah. And some people don't need a system of organization. They can just thrive in chaos. <laughs> That's what I do, baby. <laughs> Sometimes, it's, sorry to cut you off, there, but during my undergrad, people will be like, share your Google calendar. And I was like, huh? <laughs> my what? And they're like, do you not, you're not keeping track of your schedule? I'm like, no, absolutely not. It's all up here. What do you mean? You don't have a calendar? I do now. Okay. I do now because there's too much now. But in undergrad, I literally was just flying by the seat of my pants. Like I knew, I was like, yep, I'm going to be in the town where my school is because I lived the next town over and I'm just going to be there until my day is done. And I'm going to do this, this, and this, and that's how my day is going to go. And I'll pick it up again tomorrow. And I just knew. And that was my schedule every day. Mm. And I could just piece it out like that. I'm impressed. I don't, I can't do it anymore. That's what my undergrad (laughs) was and I was flailing. (laughs) <laughs> by the end of my undergrad i had scheduled out like this is when i'm gonna shower and this is when i'm gonna eat breakfast oh my god you're one of those people yeah. <laughs> the other end of the spectrum <laughs> yeah so i guess with that with the lab and this is a common concern like i liked your analogy of like from this location to like colorado or whatever how do you know when to not get a snack like for example like side projects Oh, like how do you like your PI is like, yo, we could write this methods paper. It could be hype. Like you might want to get in on this. How do you be like, yes or no to that? Because there's a lot of enticing questions. Talks. Yeah. You know, if I had a, <laughs> yeah. if I had a great system worked out for this, <laughs> I would probably be like a CEO somewhere. <laughs> Even today, I was like just off in my own world. There was like a super resolution scope on campus that I was demoing. I was just like, the last three days were just organized by that. Has almost nothing to do with what my thesis project is. Um, <laughs> that's what I mean. But that's a great question. I'd say part of it is, I mean, part of the reason I keep that kind of like three-stage list is a priority sense. So when I show up to think about what I'm going to do, I need a list of priorities. And then like my day can go however it goes. But I know what I need to get done at one, two, and three, and maybe four or five, but usually it's one. Usually one gets done, if I'm lucky. Two, three, and four are like waiting for other days. <laughs> I think the best way to keep track of whether the snacks or side projects are interfering is have I been sitting on the same priority for like much longer than I think I need to? So sometimes your number one priority will take like two weeks. I mean, for human research, again, this might be different because it's like my number one priority is to get people to come in and do this twice. (laughs) But I don't have control over that. (laughs) So Uh, I feel called out right now. There might be a way to operationalize it where it's like, because I try to have my number one priority like, I need to get this done today. That's why it's my number one priority. And 
it's not just that I need to get done today, it's that it will also take a bite out of what my thesis is later. And sometimes that's just like, I have taken notes in four different places and I can't find three of them. Today, <laughs> I need to find the three of them. <laughs> and Or I need to know that I couldn't find them so that I can then like restart and be like, all right, I needed to get these notes again. And that's kind of how I like signal myself. Like, has it been a week? And like nothing I've taken a bite out of has actually helped me with this large thesis project list. That is like my trigger to be like, red light, like you're doing something that is not. Now, do I always respond to that red light? No. (laughs) But it kind of skews the distribution of what I do towards working on my thesis versus pursuing science projects. I mean, it'll always be like a balance. And it's kind of like, not to like speak only in cellular terms, like you have an equilibrium of ions on each side of a membrane. But as those ion concentration changes or the electrical forces change, those equilibriums change. So it ends up as a dynamic equilibrium. And that's kind of how I think is balancing that, the dynamic equilibrium. Sometimes, like, you're going to skew really hard towards side projects. Something really exciting has happened. You get the opportunity to methods paper. Someone invited you to speak somewhere about something. And you're going to skew your time towards that. But you need to realize that you're going to have to, like, rebalance that out. That can't be a permanent equilibrium. You have to go back to some kind of other baseline. Hmm. I might have just totally gotten no, dynamic I, equilibrium I, part wrong. I get but. that. I think you boiled it down pretty well by that analogy. But how do you know? What's your signal? What's your I mean, my signal is a week. If I spend a week, okay, a week. and I'm like okay. realistic with myself, I'm like, I didn't get anything. Not in, not just that I didn't get anything. I like didn't try to get anything. <laughs> like I clearly did not put in the effort to move along on my thesis. Because I mean, sometimes you have weeks where it's like stuff just didn't go right, or like I'm having a bad time somewhere else, and that metastasizes in my ability to work in a focused way on what I'm doing in lab. I would also say, don't take it too hard. I think of it like baseball. Like, there's a phrase in baseball. I mean, they play 162 games. You're going to win 54 games, and you're going to lose 54 games. What matters is what you do with the other 54. So, like, a third of your games, you're just going to lose. It doesn't really matter how hard you tried or what you did. They're just done. And a third of them are going to win, although it doesn't feel like that in a PhD. <laughs> it's just it's like that's the way things skewed. It's the stuff that you do in the middle that counts. So like it's it can make it easier not to internalize when you mess up or like make sequential mistakes. That can be toxic. I would say going back to the like end of comps, you will get something that you won't get at any other time in your PhD, and that should be a lull period where you have no immediate deadlines to hit, you have no classes to take, you have no tests to do, you get more control over your time. And I'd say that's a really good time to think about what getting a PhD means to you. Because, I mean, I guess you can think about a PhD and like its core basics is like, you're gonna get subfield specific knowledge and expertise. You're gonna get technical ability in whatever experiments and techniques you do. And that will kind of like, synergize into the ability to think critically about your systems. And that's what a PhD is. Like that's what you'll get the PhD, that's what you'll defend. But there's so many other components around that that you can choose to work on. 
I would really take some time to think about what you want out of it and maybe where you want to go from there. You don't need to have like a destination. Like I want to be an industry leader in X or like I want to be a PI studying synaptic physiology. But like, oh, uh, you know, like the academic environment kind of chafes on me sometimes. I need to see what else is out there. So like, oh, I really want to work on my communication skills, especially like writing to a lay audience or giving me like, I want to work on my ability to network. I don't go to a lot of conferences, and when I do, I'm usually pretty insular and either only stay with people I know or don't meet with anybody at all. So there's like a lot of these things around a PhD that you can start to work on, and that can help you think about where you want to go from there. And I say that is a really important thing, because if you get out of your comps and are immediately like, prospectus is up, like... I need to immediately gear up for this. You'll miss that opportunity to kind of sit back and reflect. You even reflect on like where you are and like kind of what you're looking for. Some people are more okay with less work-life balance or a more dynamic balance. And some people want a more static structure where it's, I work these hours, that's what I think. And then when I'm out, I'm done. I don't respond to emails. I don't look at Slack, whatever. So you can use that kind of low period right after comps to start to figure that stuff out if you haven't already. Speaking of that lull period and this whole idea of equilibrium, what's uh your work life balance like? Is it uh heavily skewed right now? How do you how do you feel? Yeah, I'd say a lot of times I'm slightly unhappy with it. I don't know. Well, I probably work too much, but I don't know if I'm happy with it because I work more than I think I should, or if it's because I am not very good at the job I do. <laughs> Usually. In my head, what I imagine is I'm going to go in, I'm going to do these steps on this protocol with this thing I have, I'm going to get some results, I'm going to turn the results into a fancy graph, I'm going to present it to my advisor, I've done work today. And a lot of times what happens is like, I get into work, I start on something, I'm like, oh, I'm kind of hungry right now, I'm going to get hungrier, maybe I should take a snack right now, so I get a snack, <laughs> and then I get back to it, and I kind of forgot what I was doing, and it takes me a while to get like back onto it, or like maybe I made a mistake doing it, and I only realize it later, and then I have like a mild like self-destruct period (laughs) where I'm thinking about how I just never do anything right. The relatability is crazy. A day in the life. Yeah, so (laughs) way too realistic. Where was I? Um, Work life balance. Yeah. Yeah. You had just gotten food, I think. Yeah, so yeah, you get a snack and then you have like a little destruction period because you made a mistake and then now it's like three o'clock and you're like, well, you know, I had to cook dinner tonight. That's what I said I was going to do. And my dinner's going to take at least an hour to do. Like, I'll work till five. But then you get to 4.30 and you're like, I'm out. Like, this sucks. <laughs> Let's get out of here. I'm glad I'm not the only one that's like, I'm dead, but out. Like, yeah. So <laughs> there is that where it's like, that did not gel with what my idea of the day was going in. But like, you know, that's actually like a real, a real life day. Like, I kind of like to think about it. As like my day is an opponent. Because when you think about it as you are just the one doing things, then everything is like your fault. Like I went into work and I didn't do what I said I was going to do. That was on me. When I think of my day as an opponent, it's like, oh, things happened that were out of my control. And like that's the way most days go. Like no matter how much you think about it, you don't get that much control over what your day is going to be. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes your day goes perfectly. And that's when you were totally in control. Like, definitely wasn't impacted by anything else outside of that. <laughs> um, but thinking about it that way, then it's like, all right, I'm in a little more control. Like, today was bad. I'll go in tomorrow. I'll do a little bit better. Going back to the baseball analogy. 
And I'm pretty okay with that. And I don't really care about, oh, did I like show up at nine and then leave at five? And did I not think about work outside of it? And then I'm okay with like, well, I messed up like Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I guess I'll go on like Saturday and try and like get something out of the week. And that's something I'm like fairly okay with. And I try and just gauge when I need to take a rest by like, how do I feel when I'm waking up? How do I feel when I'm going to sleep? Is something off? Is it clear that like I'm not focusing very well and I need to take a break? I try to gauge it more off of kind of how I'm feeling. Whereas a lot of people I know are more like, I am not going to work on the weekend. And I'm not going to work past six o'clock. And that's <laughs> the end of the matter. And that's kind of like, however you work is good. I'm much more dynamic. Like if I wake up on Tuesday morning and I'm like, today's not going to work. I'll just bail up. and won't go to work. I'll say that I'm working from home. I won't actually do anything. I won't be <laughs> like, oh, I'll just read papers today. And I'll be like, day f- like hour four binging on Netflix or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm much more okay with that, like less structured version of a work-life balance. And I'm much more okay with like, oh, my job will probably dictate like the tempo of my life. That's not something I'm too worried about. And I'm okay with it partly because I'm confident that when I need to dictate my tempo onto my job, I can do it. Mm-hmm. I'm just okay that like most of the time I don't need to do that. That probably wasn't a great explanation of work-life balance. No, no I, I like the distinction between like dynamic and static and what works for you is what works for you. Cause I think I'm very much still exploring what works for me the best. I wish I had it figured out, <laughs> but like, I don't know if I do well being like, well, yeah, I'm not going to go in today. I'm not feeling it. Like I'll do this on the weekend or if it's better to like force myself to go in, like, you know, this time to this time and like not do work otherwise and whatever. I don't know what works best for me. And so still figuring it out. And I think that that will like, I don't know, whatever the answer is will probably be in some way related to like, oh, do I want to stay in academia? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Probably. Or not. Yeah. It's a mess. Yeah, and it always changes. Like, right now, like, you're pretty, in the terms of, like, your whole life, this is probably the time that we're least attached to to stuff. Like I get the most control over my day. Whereas if I have children or if I have aging parents I need to take care of, even aging pets I need to take care of, that stuff starts to dictate tempo on your day where it's like, hey man, your kids need to go to work or go to work. <laughs> <laughs> your kids go to the lines at 7 o'clock. It's like, my kids need to be in by 8.30. Like, I don't really care what's going on in my work life. They have to be at school at that time. And if they're not taking the bus, they're going with me. Whether that's like, tempo is dictated on you by other things but right now it's like my cat doesn't care <laughs> Flo could not care less when i'm home but when i am home sometimes she wants cuddles but like most of the time i don't have really anything tying me yeah is it like because alexa is also a grad student so like does that make it easier or harder like I don't know. Like, how is balancing a dynamic schedule with a partner as well and trying to, like, find time to be together? Hmm. I'd say she's more understanding because we're both going through it at the same time. So it's like, 
I mean, part of it is just being more understanding, like, when I was describing my day earlier, where, like, you have a meltdown, you have a snack, you don't really get much done, and you come home, and it's like, I am not in a good mindset. I don't feel good about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's much more understanding of, like, oh, your day went badly, like, that's par for the course in graduate school. It's not a problem. Whereas maybe friends that I've had, it's not that same way. It's like, oh, you had a bad day. Like, that's a big problem. We need to work on it. And it's like, well, I, I can't really work on anything. And that's like, that's just what it's going to be like. So I think they become more understanding. But it becomes harder to, like, do things specifically for us. Because if we do need to work on the weekends, and her job will dictate that she does sometimes, yeah. where experiments work, they'll just be like, oh, I have to work Saturday and Sunday this week. Like, I don't have the choice that I have to come in and do my experiments those days. So that can make it a little more difficult to specify time for us. And so then we need to work harder on, like, finding a date night that works or really being careful about making sure work doesn't bleed into the time that we should be spending together. So that's where it becomes harder. How are you staying sane during all of this? So I have a fair amount of hobbies. Ah, there it is. That's what I'm looking for. Yes, yes, yes. yes. (laughs) They're not like hobbies that most people describe where it's like, oh, I really have like a passion for this. Hmm. I like doing these things. And I I might be that I just like doing them because they're not work. Um, Because if you just like leave me on my own for a week, I'm bored of them. I like don't want to do them anymore. One of them is like sports. So I watch a lot of F1, a lot of football, and a lot of basketball. And again, if you left me alone for a week, I don't really want to watch any more of that after a week. That's not very fun. But like, Mm. when you get home from a long day at work, that can be pretty fun, especially in the background. I cook. I run. Although that's not really a hobby. It's more of like how I deal with stress. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's true. I used to read. I don't really read anymore. Let's be honest. <laughs> Probably read a lot for work. Yeah. yeah. And I'd come home and I'm like not about, I'm like, I can't bear to see another word. I <laughs> just want to watch. After I started my undergrad, people were like, oh, you like reading? Because I was a writing tutor. And I was like. Not anymore. I pretty much do all of my reading for school now because uh, I don't want to look at anything else after that. Yeah. It's the same way I do with like TV now. I'm very rarely looking for TV that like challenges me. I'm like, I want to I I go out. home and I want to watch like Transformers. So it's like, just go boom. <laughs> That's all I had to think about. I did not have to think about the morals of what was going on here. It was a very clear right and wrong. It's yeah. true. That's how that's how I was like first year of grad school in neuroscience because I did engineering. I was like, oh my God, like everyone's so ahead of me. Like, I don't know anything about the brain. And I would listen to neuroscience podcasts. I'd watch neuroscience-based Netflix. Like, neuroscience was literally my life when I woke up until I went to bed. I got so sick of it once once the semester was over. I was like, I just want to watch, like, Love Island. Let me just chill. (laughs) (laughs) So I realized that very quickly. This reminds me of a great thing that I forgot to mention. So in that lull stage, figure out what makes you passionate about, like, science in general. Because it is amazing that, I mean, we all went to grad school because at some level we were passionate about science. And graduate school sucks it out of you. It will, like, most people will leave graduate school with a PhD and, like, all the passion that they had will be, like, curdled up and thrown away. So 
And no one will like help you with it. You have to like sit down and figure out what makes you passionate about it and then do those things at the expense of like thesis research or side projects specifically to keep fueling your passion. So people really like communicating science to others. So like high school lectures, stuff like that, even just talking to friends about it. Some people, it's other things. It's like, and you'll ever find like the perfect thing. I'll be like, oh, this is the holy grail of passion that holds me. <laughs> but it'll be like, oh, I'm like kind of excited to do that. As opposed to like when I go into work, usually I'm not excited to do that. Yeah. So it's finding those things that like kind of excite you and trying to do them a little bit more and make space for them can be really helpful because that can be like a bulk word against when things go badly inevitably at some point that can help you like take those failures in stride and not spend a lot of time at home thinking about how much of a mistake going to graduate school was, (laughs) which will happen to everybody at some point. But having like some defense against that can mean that that's just like a thing that you can deal with versus like an existential crisis that, because at some point, it will make you pay attention, and you will have to figure out what made you passionate about it, or you'll want to quit. Yeah. Or you will quit. Not that you want to quit. All of us want to quit at some point. <laughs> I have a question that's, like, kind of related, where, like, I'm curious how your relationship with your mentor has changed throughout grad school so far. And, like, with that... How has your relationship with yourself as like a researcher changed hmm. with that relationship? Because I ask because I feel like I'm struggling to change my mindset from I work for a boss and I do stuff for them and like get these things done because they asked me versus, okay, let me think about why am I doing this PhD? Like, what am I trying to do? What do I need to do? And like, how do I do that? And I, That is a great question. And I'm going to try and answer it, but it might seem like I'm in left field for a little bit. Sure. (laughs) So I think one of the things that we don't talk about with a PhD enough is that, I mean, at its core aspect, it's that like knowledge plus technical skill and the ability to design kind of like synthesizing both of those. You can ask and answer questions in your subfield. And that's what you get your PhD in. But there's like an ancillary piece of it that is about being an independent actor as a scientist And ideally, everybody who gets a PhD is an independent actor. But no part of the PhD process formally trains you in independence. I think that goes to how you relate to your mentor. Because you can, you often will think about your mentor as your boss, and that you're doing what you're doing because they told you to do it. But obviously, if you like stand up at a conference and present your research, and someone asks you why you did that experiment, and you're like, my boss told me to do it. <laughs> that's not going to go. You get fried. Exactly. Well, I feel like that's a perfect response. So I think part of it is just being like really practical. Like, well, my boss told me to do it, so I have to do it. But by the same token, I need to figure out why they maybe do it. And I find this advice is going to be helpful and not helpful at the same time. I find writing out each one of the experiments I do pretty helpful in this. Now, do I do this all the time? No. And I regret not doing it. But like, it would be like, all right, I have one page to explain what this experiment is, what I need to do, and why I'm doing it. And you'll find that just writing it out on a piece of paper or on a computer 
you'd be like, wow, I absolutely do not know the answer to one of these. And that can at least prompt you to go back to your boss and be like, why are we doing it this way? Or for you to be like, well, I mean, like I've read like a few papers about what I do. What techniques have they used? You can read them. And sometimes in the text, they'll include like a few sentences that like will stimulate you and make you realize that that's why they did it that way. And you can bring that answer to your boss so you have something. But sometimes you just have to go to your PI and be like, I don't get why we're doing it this way. Can we like, can you kind of explain it to me in more basic terms? So that's a very practical aspect of like, I am still someone doing what my boss told me to do. Yeah. But that can start giving you answers and you can feed that kind of independent side of you where if you've done that a few times, you can start projecting where your project's going or where you want to go. And that is where the independence part comes mm. in. Because being independent doesn't really mean that you're doing it all by yourself. Yeah. It just means that you can comprehend the task well enough, you know where to get help from, and you can do it specifically. So it's like, oh, I can kind of see where this is going now. I know this other person that does this. I met them at a conference, and we exchanged phone numbers because we were drinking together. <laughs> and you can text them and ask them about it. Like Maybe they don't have that great um, – they don't help you very much, but they point you towards your review – and then from that, you can start to build out what you have. Yeah. And then you can come to your boss with that. And that's when you've reached independence. You're like, hey, you said we're trying to answer this question. We've gotten like this far. I think we should do this. This is why I think we should do it. They can disagree with you or not. But now you're the one driving your project forward. The yeah. problem is at the beginning, you just can't. Mm -hmm. like, there's no, like, so there's no way to like independently yeah. drive your project forward. I'd say just like constantly working on knowing why you're doing what you're doing yeah. at the beginning will help. And then trying to project forward because it's, that's more of a skill than it's like a feeling. So if you do it and you get it wrong, then you can do it again. You might get a little bit better. And then so you're able to project it pretty well. Yeah. And you understand where you're going to like track your arc. Gotcha. That makes sense. Someone gave me, I asked that a similar question because I was like struggling with like, not battling with my supervisor, but like advocating for myself on certain things, even though I don't know the science very well. And they told me like in early stages, you're not going to do that. Like there's just no way you just pick their brain and like try to keep understanding them as best you can. They told me, you know, you're ready to defend and get your, get a PhD when you start teaching them about a concept. You're like, you don't know about this. I'm going to tell you about this. I'm an expert. You know, that's when you know. It was when you build that. So, like, don't be, like, too antsy to, like, get to that level. You're training to get to that level of, like, independence. So, like, some underlying, like, unknown aspect to a PhD. Again, it's one of those layers from what I got. Because I was really struggling. I was, like, like a seven-layer yeah. dip out here. <laughs> I was, like, I want, exactly, Avery. I was just, like, I know I want to do this. Like, why won't you let me do this? You know? And it's, like, you got you got to really know your, your stuff. To do it. I think I'm almost the opposite where I'm like, oh, thinking about comps and I'm like, okay, I mean, I'm working on this project, so I guess I'll write my comps about this project. Like, mm -hmm. should I come up with my aims? Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, and I don't know. And I'm just like so scared to think on my own about a project because I haven't done that very much. Mm -hmm. And so. Yeah. I'm just like, who, me? Get in line. I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. and, but like comps, you know, like you have to, and just, I mean, everything. But I think it's hard. I think it, it's one of the growing pains of grad school where you're just like, I 
I don't know how to do this yet and I want to do this. <laughs> I can't do it and I feel like an idiot. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel that exact thing, exact thing with my comps too. Like I know exactly what I'm going to be sort of in the realm of, you know, stroke patience and sleep. But when I think about like writing my specific games, I'm like, no, that's too much. I, I know I'm going to study those people. I'm going to study those people. But uh, don't ask me to get specific about it. Like just those people. That's it. Something with that. It's so daunting. No. I mean, part of it's a confidence game where it's like, it's not just the skill you need to build up. You need to build the confidence to be like, because you're not just going to be like, all right, I've learned all that needs to be learned. Now I'm going to dish it out on my PI. <laughs> you also have to like accumulate oh, ready. <laughs> where it's like, oh, I went to a conference and I said, someone asked me a question. I said something and they were like, good point. And I was like, Chalk that up. Remember that forever. It's like <laughs> yeah. accumulate like some of those wins, and then you're like going at your PI, and you're like saying an idea now secretly at your poster. Someone told you you should do this, but you didn't tell your PI that. You're just like saying the idea, like I think based on this evidence we should do this, and they're like, "Oh, it's a pretty good idea." And you're like another confidence <laughs> thing, like in my head. <laughs> and then soon enough, it's like a property that you have, and you can start dictating terms a little bit more. Need to start a list of writing those little moments for do myself. It. That's true. <laughs> that's true. I mean, that's another thing PhDs won't do for you. They'll just beat you down. <laughs> so you have to like go out of your way to develop confidence in something. That's true. Yeah. I feel those wins. Yeah, it's like another PI I was talking about in like a related field gave me some really good information. I was like, oh, this is genius. I like presented it to my PI. She's like, whoa, yeah, you're onto something. And you're like, <laughs> And I'm like, why yeah. am I not asking other people questions? Yes, yes I am on the <laughs> Yes, in fact. Not stealing information. It's just, I'm gathering it and relaying it. <laughs> I like that. Um, that's a good idea. Write it down. <laughs> also, it's amazing what you can find in reviews. At the end of reviews, authors always are like, uh, let me just speculate wildly about where we're going. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, like I just read you like three sentences. Now I've synthesized your speculation. <laughs> and now when someone asks me where the field's going, I'm just about those. Also, don't forget to live. Everybody, like, just tunnel visions in on their PhD, like, I need to get out. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. if you go to a conference in, like, San Diego, nothing's stopping you from standing an extra week. I did stand That's a good <laughs> <laughs> Now that you bring that up. Like a Joshua Tree camp. Is oh, that's oh, so that's cool. So sick. Yeah. That's stuff you need to do because if you just mainline your PhD the whole time, when things go off the rails, and they will go off the rails at least once, if not like four times, it's <laughs> yeah. going to be like, I spent three years doing just this. It's true. But when you like take a few weeks to like go to San Diego or like you go to an overseas conference and stay there for a few weeks, then it's a little easier to take that blow. It's like, well, I spent three years, but like, I did spend like a month in Europe on the school's dime, more or less. So <laughs> this wasn't that bad. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I think my only other question is kind of just like, it's a little lame. But it was just like, <laughs> how is it when you didn't have to take classes anymore? Did it so, get easier or harder? You do have to TA. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But my God. Taking classes is such a waste of time. <laughs> Someone <laughs> said it. <laughs> I hate to be that person, but it's like, it eats up so much mental energy and stress with finals and tests 
and homework and all this stuff. And it's like, if you do the real math, people retain like between five and 10% of the information they learn in class year to year. And you'll probably use 2%, unless you're taking a nice specifically focused class in your field, like for neurobio or neuroanatomy, you'll probably retain or need about 2% of the total information you learn. That's like... That's accurate. I am. Like, I did get in graduate school because I'm, like, at least a decent learner. I probably could have spent the time it took to take classes and all the energy and stress that I poured into it. I could have just learned what I needed to. Like, I would have learned a few things that I didn't need to because I don't know exactly what I'm doing. But it's hard for you to make an argument like, you're in a lab, you know what you need to learn. You're going to learn 98% of the things wrong or useless. So, I mean, that being said, classes are important, but it is great not taking them. You will dictate much more of your day. You'll have a better like sense of flow. You'll be able to plan your experiments the way you want to. And at the end of the semester, you'll get crunched a little bit, but not the way you get like crunched with classes where it's like suddenly the last three weeks become life or death. Everything goes out the window, and now you spend like a month recovering from the ordeal I just went through. You're like, yeah. oh, I had to like proctor an exam. That was pretty boring and useless. <laughs> but I'll go back to like lab and do something. Yeah. Oh, looking forward to it. Yeah. That's <laughs> great. Yeah. It's great. The light at the end of the tunnel. True. I thought I should be advocating for classes being useless. Like, <laughs> <laughs> educator, but it's, it's, I mean, it's just hard for me to think like the internet exists. Like I can figure out the knowledge that we have. I can read a few review articles. I know how to do that. I'm a professional student. Like the information is probably not what I need anymore. I probably need skills. Like I can't look up how to write well, or I can't look up how to write good. <laughs> well, we're like how to present. Well. I can't look that up. I can like look up stuff and like try pretty hard, but those are skills that you can't develop. And that spending. Concerted time with an educator would really help me with. Like, it's kind of hard to... Because I imagine neurobiology, I feel like neuroscience falls in two camps. You either got a lot out of neuroanatomy, and you'll use it, and you got nothing out of neurobiology. Or you got a lot out of neurobiology, and you'll use it, and you got nothing out of neuroanatomy. <laughs> it's like, yeah. those are the two hardest classes we take. You could tell me that our energy and time would not be better spent doing something else. Like learning how to give seminars or learning how to write or just yeah, communicate out. communicate science. Like that's a huge thing I feel like would or be like, useful for everybody. Hear me out. Building a passion for science, which is why we all got into this in the first place. <laughs> Apparently that's not a necessity to get a PhD, but whatever. Uh, you don't need passion. That's oh, <laughs> true. It's kind of ironic because like the use it or lose it concept. Neurons aren't firing together. They dissipate. Yeah. We're not using neuroanatomy every day. So why don't you teach us about science identity or passion? Because yeah. you're using that every day. In the neuroanatomy, you would learn. Why don't learn, they think like that? You'd learn anyways because you're using it every day. Yeah. I kind of like to think of it as like sports statistics. Like I don't sit down and get on reference, basketball reference, and like mainline eight years of like <laughs> Kawhi Leonard stats and <laughs> memorize them. You don't do that? That's crazy. But I That's watch absurd. a bunch of I games and I start to like get in the feel for it. I hear things over and over again. I'm a big fan. So then over time, I develop this like pretty sophisticated ecosystem 
of like statistics and understanding and knowledge, but it's because I'm a fan. Mm -hmm. I didn't like sit down and read a textbook on basketball and mainline the statistics on the internet. I did the opposite way. And in fact, if I, if I like just mainline statistics, I'd probably forget 95% of them anyways, because I wouldn't be using them every day. You think we could be smarter as an educated public about <laughs> higher education, but yeah. <sighs> got to get rid of the traditional folk. Good luck. <laughs> academia is the and with that we should we should just end it there. <laughs> academia is the second like longest running institution in the world, besides the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah. The first university was started, I mean, European style, about 1000 AD. Wow. And do you know how they taught? With lectures and advisors. What was the biggest academic, like, multiple choice tests? Those were invented. The PowerPoint? That's like as much as we've invented in a thousand years. Our classroom environment is basically the same. PowerPoint really changed the game. Oh, yeah. It really did. It really did. (laughs) Distill down knowledge in five bullet points? Wow. Okay. And then make terrible exams based off those five bullet points? Yeah, when you think about it that way, it all, like, makes sense suddenly. Like, academia is just a really old, really conservative institution. It doesn't want to change. It really likes to tell other institutions they need to change. Yeah. But, no, no. We won't. We won't change. true. Never shine a light on yourself. No. no Absolutely no. not. Intellect is a weapon to be wielded against others. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Never to like turn and be introspective. Nah. Absolutely no. not. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm going to prove it. Don't even think about why you're doing your PhD. <laughs> exactly. Just you're just going to do it and you're going to do it the way everybody else did it because that's the way everybody else did it. I did it. You did it. We're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that summarized a lot of people. Yeah. That's a good way to end it. Yep. Do it. Right. With that, Bill, thank you so much for yeah. coming along. And thank you for inviting me. I hope some yeah. of my words were helpful. Very wise. A lot of Great. very wise. A lot of analogies. Oh, I walked away with a lot of dude, analogies. I used a disgusting amount of analogies. <laughs> we met you at scene pointing out like he liked the Colorado thing. Yeah. I think of a PhD as a cross country journey. Let's go. Like, it all started on the East Coast. Obviously, we all started in different places because it's like some people finish faster than others. Mm-hmm. Some people start in Maine. Some people start in Corpus Christi. You've got a lot less distance <laughs> oh to go. But also, like, there's all these like physical obstacles as you're trying to walk across the country. What if you walk into like like Michigan? Either you have to build a boat, or you have to walk around it. Same with like you get to the Rocky Mountains or the Appalachian Mountains. You have to find a pass, or you have to blast your way through the mountains. And I like to like, kind of think about that, because it's like, oh, some people get farther ahead, like they have a different path. Their path might take them along like obstacles they already know how to solve, whereas like I get stuck behind something I don't know how to solve, and you get stuck there for a while. But it doesn't mean that I'm a worse hiker. I was just encountering different terrain. Hmm. I, wow. That is super wise. That is it super also wise. is nice, because it's like, what's the real point of a PhD? It's not the piece of paper. It's like all the stuff you can learn along the way. Because like you can think of PhD as like reaching the West Coast. And you can take a boat wherever you want to go, like whatever your career is after that. Mm-hmm. It's not like 
getting to the West Coast really doesn't mean anything. In like, if you just took like a UFO and just flew over the United States, I don't want to use the UFO. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was like gonna it. let it. If ride. You took a plane <laughs> and just got dropped off in San Francisco. Like you would have gone to the West Coast. Like it wouldn't really matter because you didn't figure out how to get across the country. Yeah, so true. So it's like all the little skills and challenges and confidence and passion you build up so through the cross country journey. Is that it's not about the destination. Well, no, it is about the journey. It's, it's so cliche. It's about the friends you make along the way. Yeah, yeah, I feel pretentious <laughs> and terrible for saying it, but it is the journey. That being said, I want that journey to be over so fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of eating bugs in the middle of nowhere. I want to get to the West Coast, eat at a restaurant. Get some sushi. Yeah. Right now I feel like I'm eating bugs. But what about postdoc? <laughs> From bugs? <laughs> From bugs to bugs. Oh, okay. For all my complaints about academia, I want to be a PI. Are you going to Oh, wow. <laughs> that is the, like, it's the only possibility I've fleshed out right now. I have this weird dream of the future where we both end up in New York and we can be friends at like whatever. Where did you get this dream? Like an actual like, like I got this dream when you talked about maybe being in New York and oh. I think over the summer I'd met people who were like at NYU or Columbia and they were like so happy and I was like shit. Maybe I would like to live in New York. I was like I literally talked to someone who works in New York about doing a postdoc. This is like the first time I was actually like basically like I want to do a, I might want to do a postdoc with you would you be able to accept me as a postdoc like have like that real conversation mm-hmm. yeah. kind of feels like when you're in a relationship and you're like I want this to move beyond this casual yeah. thing that we have yeah. are we like what, together what are like, <laughs> I like you do you like me yes exactly we just like partners <laughs> so it's very awkward but it happened and I might go there oh my I mean God. I really like him and I really like his lab and what they do but but yeah I'm like a year, year and a half away from graduating, and I'll be, I'll wait for Alexa to graduate as well. I'm not into the whole like being alone thing. Yeah. I'm also not into like the whole like, I get my career would dictate a lot of things, but I can't let it dictate everything. Because if I set that pattern, it, I will never erase that pattern. Yeah. That will be the pattern for the rest of my life. It's like, I like science a lot. I want to like be successful and whatever, but it's not worth everything. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. I think whenever I try and think about like, oh yeah, because before, like before I got into a relationship, <laughs> I was just like, yeah. Yeah, I'll go wherever the job is. Yeah, like this is what I am here to do. This is what I care about doing. This is what I'm going to do. And like, I still feel that way. But now I'm like, oh, but like, oh, it's so nice to, I don't know go hiking together or like go do something or yep. this person's so great and wow mm. maybe I want to change some things now and at first I was like no don't change anything you don't want to lose yourself <laughs> <laughs> and that's when you lose yourself <laughs> <laughs> and like now I'm at a nice balance I would say but I still I think I'll go back and forth with industry for example to be like Oh, I could have money. Money, yeah. yeah. Money. <laughs> I could have money, and that's huge. Like, I don't have investments. I don't have savings. Like, yeah, I have a retirement plan. I'm, like, almost 30 years old. I don't know what to And so I'm like, oh, I'm seeing, you know, my sisters are engineers. Oh. They make money. And I'm like, oh, I just what want. What have I done? Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, I'm like, what have I done? And so, you know, in the moments where I'm just really overwhelmed with everything or upset or feel like defeated, I'm like, I'm going to go work in industry. Like, I don't even, I'll just do whatever pays me six figures and that's fine. And I don't actually want to do that, but yeah, that's a thought. A good thought. (laughs) Anyway. Cool. Yeah. Well, with that, (laughs) that's it. Season one, episode four. With Bill. In the book. Yeah, episode five. Yeah. No. Right. Episode no. five total. Well, no, this is the, the fourth of the, the first pilot, The pilot is not part of season one, technically. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. We're tricky. We're yes. tricky, yeah. We're getting yep, tripped yep. up here. Yep. There are four up. episodes, however. Yours is the fourth in season one. Hmm. Fifth recording. Fifth recording. Fifth recording. Fourth yeah. episode of season one. Make me think. I don't like that. Sorry. As I said earlier, I don't like to think. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. All right. Cool, cool. That concludes today's episode. Please check the show notes for references from our fact check. Catch us at the start of each month for a new episode. And if you have any questions or inquiries, contact us at educatedbutconfused at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. You didn't like that triple berry breezer? <laughs>